And if you'll keep those Bibles open and turn over to 2 Kings chapter 8. Now in the Old Testament, our sermon text is 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Before us uh, this morning in these uh, 15 verses, we're going to have the examination of two very different but very sinful hearts. And that's what we want to examine uh, this morning, these two sinful hearts that are apart from the Lord, both in Haziel, which we'll be introduced to uh, this morning as he goes and murders the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, and that of Jehoram, the king of Israel. So, Again, reading the first 15 verses of chapter 8, 2 Kings. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son had, he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, The woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told to him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Haziel, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that you will certainly die, or he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him, talking about Elisha to Haziel, until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. 
For the next day he took a bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. And Haziel became king in his place. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Let us pray one more time. Father in heaven, we do come knowing that this is uh, a sobering selection of your text. One that shows us the wickedness of an evil heart. And yet, Lord, we pray that through this examination of these two sinful hearts, the heart of Jehoram and the heart of Haziel, Lord, that we would understand uh, that the heart is sinful above all things and apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, we are but desperate uh, to, to understand that our hearts are as equal as these. And so, Lord, show us our depravity. Show us your holiness Show us your goodness, show us your grace, so that we may walk in the power of a clear conscience, in Christ-likeness. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, just to give you some brief commentary on verses 1 and 2, that's not the, the main focus of our text for this morning, but to understand something about the context of what's going on within this chapter, we're looking at a few years prior to the famine which we were introduced to last week. So we have to understand that what's happening here in chapter 8 comes before what we just studied in chapter 7. Even while I was reading the text, if you've been with us for a number of weeks as we've been journeying through the life of Elijah and Elisha, you might have been surprised that Gehazi was here in our text because remember, Gehazi was the one who stole the goods of the king, Ben-Hadad, uh, unrightfully uh, as uh, he pursued Naaman after Naaman was healed. And because of his sin, you remember that Elisha cursed Gehazi with leprosy. And so this comes before the famine, this comes before the healing of Naaman. And then in verse 7, when Haziel murders Ben-Hadad, we're looking at a few years after the famine. And so we don't have a very clean chronological sequence happening here, but it's something to understand that Gehazi now is before King Jehoram, and he desires to know something about this prophet Elisha. He desires to know something about the power, the miraculous wonders, the authoritative teaching of Elisha. And so... Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, is there before the king speaking of the sequence of events that led to Elisha healing, restoring to life the Shunammite woman's son. Now, the author of this book, 2 Kings, specifically here in chapter 8, begins to reveal something to us about the kindness of the Lord to this Shunammite woman. Remember, this Shunammite woman and her husband had uh, shown great hospitality to Elisha. They had even built a room on their house for Elisha, the prophet of God, to stay in as he traveled to and fro speaking the message of the Lord. And the Lord did not forget their kindness to the man of God. And so before the famine even hits, Elisha, the prophet, goes back to this Shunammite woman... And he tells her that she should leave her home, 
leave her crops, leave her farm, it seems, uh, and she should sojourn away from her house so that she might be preserved, that she might not face the consequences of the famine. And so you see there in verse 2 that the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now, even though this isn't the main focus of the story, think about the encouragement that this Shunammite woman felt. She sees the kindness of God because she has been kind to the man of God. What an encouragement for her, right? That she had sacrificially cared for Elisha, and now the Lord is preserving her life and her household's life throughout the famine. It's an assurance. It's a small kindness that goes a long way for a massive encouragement by the Lord. But then you see here in verse 2 that when she returns after the famine, when she returns after the famine, she goes to appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And that is where Gehazi and the king Jehoram are speaking. Notice how the text unfolds there for us in verses 3 through 6. That Gehazi is telling the king Jehoram, the king of Israel, about this young boy in which Elisha has restored to life. And in verse 5, you know that I love the word behold because it's jarring your attention. It wants you to understand something spectacular that's about to take place. While Gehazi is telling Jehoram this story... Behold, the son and the woman, the Shunammite woman, walk into the door. Now you think about the scene. You you imagine how Gehazi is absolutely stunned. We've all been shocked by something where we just kind of dumbfoundedly look upon what just walked in the door and we begin to point, we begin to stutter over our words. That's something what Gehazi is experiencing. He's telling this miraculous story firsthand. I saw Elisha take the son into his room. And I heard about how Elisha threw himself over this young boy and prayed over him. And then I saw Elisha and this young boy walk down the steps from his room. And the boy who was dead is now alive. And then open the doors of the throne room. And here is that Shunammite woman, and here is the son. And you can imagine he's going, but, but, what? And the best he's got is, there he is. There he is. This, This young boy that I told you that Elisha has restored to life, raised from the dead, that's him. And that's his mama. And immediately the king is struck, and he begins to ask in verse 6. The questions regarding what Elisha had had done for this woman and for her son. And and he is absolutely fascinated. Let your eyes fall back at verse 6. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. She told him all that had happened. And so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. 
So she's coming to plead for her home and for her land. Of course, we understand that during the famine, this, this home and her land, this farm, was probably absorbed by the government to, to try to provide some sort of food for the citizens. And see, so she's going to directly to the king and, and asking for him to give back her belongings. And he not only gives them back to her, but he gives back to her all that was hers from the day that she left until now. And so he's paying back all the crops she would have raised for these seven years. He's given her all the livestock that would have been born during these seven years. All the riches that would have been hers that she would have earned through these seven years. He's going, not only am I going to give it back, but I'm going to give you back all that was yours from this kingdom, from this government. And so we see something about the fascination of Jehoram as he hears about the miraculous deeds of Elisha, the prophet of God. And it's at this moment that, that you might think, well, well, why spend time talking to us about Jehoram and his fascination with God, especially how he's fascinated with the God of Elisha? Well, it's here, isn't it? That he sees something of the work of the Lord. Naaman hasn't been healed yet. His right-hand man hasn't been healed yet. But he has heard about how through the power of the Lord, the prophet of the Lord, Elisha himself has raised the dead. This would be something far beyond his comprehension, even his imagination. And now before him, he has to respond in some way. And that's what the story is trying to help grab your attention. It's supposed to captivate you saying, what is Jehoram going to do with this information? Will he understand the blessing, the deliverance, the life that comes from the God of Elisha? Or will he turn away from God or further away from God, turn towards his idols and turn from the God of Elisha? What's he going to do with this God who is displayed before him? And sadly, we know from 2 Kings chapter 3, if you want to keep your finger there at chapter 8, we'll return there very briefly. But as we're introduced to Jehoram in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, and we've referenced this before in our journey through the life of the prophet Elisha, that Jehoram is the son of Ahab. He becomes king over Israel in Samaria. He reigned 12 years. And here's, here's the information that we need to pay attention to. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he paid attention to this word. He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, if we were to scratch at that Hebrew language there, that clung, you would know it's a very active way of speaking of Jehoram's sin, his idolatry. It's almost as if the, the author saying he is still clinging to these false gods. And so we know what Jehoram does with this information, with this power of the Lord. He hears it. 
and yet his grasp upon his idols, his desperate holding fast to these false gods is something that he cannot give up. Was he impressed with the stories? Was he impressed with the stories of Elijah? Elisha? Was he impressed with the stories of the Lord's power? And, and of course, the answer here in chapter 8 is yes. He's fascinated, even enough so that he would give the Shunammite woman not only justice, but far beyond what would be just. He clearly is interested in the stories. He's clearly fascinated with the testimony, but he remains completely unchanged. What we need to see about Jehoram's sinful heart is that he has a fascination, but he does not have faith. Here's what Del Ralph Davis says in his commentary. He says, Here is Jehoram who was curious but not committed, attracted but not submissive. Here is Jehoram who was curious but not committed, attracted but not submissive. You know, there's a great story about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers. And in 1941, he was preaching an Easter sermon there at Trinity College in Cambridge. And he preached Luke chapter 8, where Christ raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And in that sermon, he speaks, of course, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his power to give life and the way that he gives life, new life to sinners who are dead in their sins and their trespasses. And even speaks of this idea where The resurrection is beyond human comprehension, and yet what is impossible with man is possible with God. That just as God can deliver physical humans from death to life, He can take spiritually dead people and make them alive in Christ. And it's the principle of Trinity College, what they call the Master of Trinity College, who was not a believer, quickly ran up to Lloyd-Jones and says, Sir, it has been given to you to speak with great power and great conviction about such a great God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones quickly, he takes this opportunity to call this principle, this master to faith. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says very sadly that the master sucks his teeth And he walks away. See, the master was very fascinated in the power, the supposed power in his mind of Jesus. He was fascinated, but he did not possess faith. And this is what we see here with Jehoram. We recognize a a power, a, a pull of the gospel, and yet he doesn't truly embrace the gospel. It's fascination, not faith. Again, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, he summarizes it very nicely. He says, there is, it seems, a vast gulf between being charmed by the truth and being converted by the truth. There's a big difference in being charmed by the truth and being converted by the truth. And so we have to ask ourselves the very soul-searching question, are we just fascinated by the gospel? Are we charmed by the gospel? Is it good news where it gives us something to hold on to, something to grip, something to find some hope in, and yet we don't possess saving faith. We cannot have fascination. We must have 
faith. We see Jehoram's fascination with the Lord, but we see that Jehoram has absolutely no faith in the Lord. And then the author of 2 Kings chapter 8 moves us a few years later. And he gives us this wicked man, Haziel, as he approaches Elisha there on behalf of King Ben-Hadad. That's in verses 7 through 12 for us. This is after the healing of Naaman in the Jordan River. And so Ben-Hadad, who knows something about the healing powers of the Lord through Elisha, he sends his new right-hand man, Haziel, to go before Elisha to see if he is going to be healed, to see if he is going to live through this severe sickness. And so he sends, you would think that Ben-Hadad would learn something of the lessons of Uh, the faith of Elisha, that he doesn't need the 40 camels of goods from Damascus. He's tried that before with Naaman, and Elisha sent him away and said it has nothing to do with earthly treasures. It has everything to do with obedience to the Lord. But nonetheless, he sends Haziel with all these presents to the man of God, and Elisha, through a vision from the Lord, answers Haziel's question, will the king recover from this severe sickness? And, and, and very quickly, Elisha says, yes, Haziel, he will. But he is also going to die. And actually, as Elisha peers into uh, the eyes of Haziel, it's, it's as if the Lord is peering into the wicked heart of Haziel. And he is saying, it's going to be by your hands that he will die. He will recover from this severe sickness, but he will also die from your hands. And and better yet, you will become king. Or maybe we should say, even worse yet, you will become king. And you will do wicked things against the kingdom of Israel. We see how the despair of, of Haziel's wicked heart feels the eyes of Elisha in verse 12. He peers into the heart of Haziel and then he weeps. And Haziel asks Elisha there in verse 12, Why does my Lord weep? And these are some some hard descriptions of the evil, the wickedness that exists in Haziel's heart. You will set fire to the fortresses of Israel. You will kill the young men of Israel with the sword. You will dash in pieces their children. You will rip open their pregnant women. And Elisha is is full of grief and and full of despair. He knows of the, the persecution. He knows of the wicked heart of this leader of the kingdom of Syria. And he weeps. And it's fitting. I think for us to do the same thing. When we see how wicked our culture is, and we see how chaotic our political system is, and and we see that sin is running rampant in our land, and we see how God's people are being persecuted, it's good for us to weep. It's fitting for us to weep. It it, it should cause our hearts to, to say, along with Elisha, along with the apostles of the New Testament, along with the apostle John as he sits on the island of Patmos, 
alone and in despair in exile. How long, O Lord? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. We, we long for the day that evil is not running rampant and wicked hearts are not prevailing. And, and yet, you, you see something of, of Haziel's reaction here. You see something of Haziel's reaction here. He, he says, who am I but a dog who would do such wicked things? Why would I do such a wicked thing? Why would I be this wicked in the depths of my heart so that I might kill little ones or or rip open pregnant women? Why would I do such a thing? And simply it's because the heart is far more wicked than we could ever imagine. Beloved, do you know how evil the human heart can be? And as Elisha peers into the heart of Haziel, the Lord is revealing to Elisha the prophet how wicked the heart of Haziel is. It's it's something, at least it takes my mind to uh, the upper room with Jesus and His disciples. And you remember as the Lord says very clearly to His twelve, there is one here who is going to betray Me. And all the room is in panic. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Will it be me, Lord? And you remember how the text in in John goes. That the Lord peers into the eyes of Judas Iscariot and He says, it's the one who I will share this bread with. It's the one who will dip at the same time as me. He's revealing something of the wickedness the wickedness of Judas's heart, so much so that he would betray the Christ for 30 pieces of silver. That's the scene that's before us. It's this idea that the prophecy is written in such a way that it should cause us to gasp. It should make us uncomfortable. It should cause us to, to go, my God, how could someone be so wicked? Of course, that's the reaction of Elisha as he is being shown the the, the future of the kingdom of the people of God. But it just reminds us, doesn't it? That the Lord sees the depths of the heart and He sees how depraved our heart is. I remember uh, our, our dear friend, Pastor Jason Brewer, who, who's the pastor at Mullins Presbyterian Church many years ago now during our vacation Bible school he, he was preaching a text, and the text even slips my mind, but he gave this powerful illustration. He said, what if, much like an x-ray machine, what if we could x-ray our heart and we could put all of our sins on the display for all to see? How much would you cringe? If we were to take Matt Adams's heart and we were to display all the sins of Matt Adams's heart before you, how how ashamed I should be, right? We would never want that to happen. We would never want someone to know the the wickedness, the depravity of our own hearts. We would be shamed for, for you to know. I would be ashamed for you to know how sinful I really am. And yet Jason said, the Lord knows the depths, the wickedness of your heart, and we should be ashamed 
that our hearts are as sinful as they are before Him. But immediately you think, well, Matt, there is not a wickedness in my heart that compares to Haziel. Look at verse 13, where he calls himself a dog, where he says, surely I won't do this. Haziel has that same reaction, don't you see? There's no way, Elisha, my heart is that wicked. And beloved, just as Haziel's heart is that wicked, so we must know that our hearts, apart from the grace of God, can be that wicked. Apart from the grace of God, our hearts can be that wicked. You know what's the difference between Haziel's heart and our heart as Christians? That the grace of God has made us new creations. That the grace of God has enabled us to fight sin. But if we don't fight sin, this is how wicked we might even become. You know, we are new creations, but Paul, and I mention this often, Paul tells us the, the Christian experience in Romans chapter 7. And he makes it crystal clear that evil is raging war against our own souls. And he says in Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then in verse 23 he says, But I see in my members another law raging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's saying, I know the law and yet in my flesh I cannot do it. I cannot live a life that is pleasing to God by myself. Even in my members, down to my fingers and toes, it's like he's saying, I am sinful. And so we don't need to protest this in our hearts. We don't need to say, I don't have the ability to be wicked as Haziel here is wicked. Haziel didn't become a murderer at once. Haziel didn't become suddenly this deeply wicked at once, but he allowed his temptation to lead him to sin and his sin to lead him to more sin. This is how one pastor put it. He said, we first endure temptation, then we look upon temptation with pity, and then we embrace it. Listen to that again. We first endure it, then we look upon it with pity, and then we embrace it. You know, it's a foolish thing to make light of the guilt of sin in God's sight. But furthermore, it's foolishness to make light of the power of sin even in our own hearts. That's why the Lord Jesus tells us that we ought to pray, lead us not into temptation. Because what the proverb says is that fools mock at sin. That is, they mock at the confession of sin and the repentance from sin but among the righteous there is favor and grace. Or think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul says, It's dangerous to overlook or minimize sin. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he can stand take heed lest he fall. Take heed lest he fall. And that's why Haziel falls. That's why we see him spiraling downward into this wickedness. And apart from the grace of God, we could be so wicked ourselves. Satan and his power is a real power to tempt 
and to cause the people of God to fall. There's a war raging within ourselves that calls us to fail. We need the grace of God to persevere. We need the grace of God to restrain the power of the evil one, to check even our heart's evil desires, to resist temptation, to stand firm against temptation. We need the Lord Jesus to peer into our hearts and unnerve us in such a way that we would say along with the psalmist in Psalm 51, see the innermost part of my hearts and then create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There's a real sense in which Haziel stands as a warning to us and says, and says, take heed lest you become as wicked as Haziel. Fight against sin. Mortify your sin. Pray constantly that God would, would bind the evil one and bind him up tightly so that we might stand against the darts of the evil one. But you know, here it is that it's real easy as we circle back to even what we said at the very beginning. It's real easy for us to point fingers at Haziel and say, look at that sinner. Look how wicked he is. Look how condemned he is under the judgment of God. Surely, he is going to face the wrath that is to come and give Jehoram the pass. Remember, it's Jehoram that's fascinated by God. It's Jehoram that's even moved to to do godly justice by the stories of God. And, And yet, and yet, Jehoram's fascination is not going to save him. You see, as as we see the the wicked hearts, as we see the sinful hearts of Haziel and Jehoram, we must ask ourselves the question, who is going to stand condemned? The answer is both. The answer is both. Haziel will face the wrath of God that is to come. And Jehoram, even though he has this fascination with the gospel, that he has this fascination with the Lord because he does not possess saving faith. He will also, he will also suffer the wrath that is to come. Beloved, fascination will not save you. Fascination will not save you. You must repent and believe in the gospel. And beloved, you must fight against sin so that our hearts might not spiral downward in wickedness and evil as Haziel. There's two, two illustrations clearly on display. Don't fall into the nominal Christianity of Jehoram. Don't just be fascinated with the gospel, but believe in the gospel. And don't, and don't let sin and wickedness prevail in your life, but kill it, mortify it, and prayerfully watch so that we might not fall into temptation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would be watchful and prayerful, that we would examine even our hearts so that we might say, here is the sin. Would you create in us clean hearts? Would you renew a right spirit within us? Would you not cast us away from your presence, not take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation? Cause us, Lord, to be upheld 
Enable us to be upheld with a willing spirit that casts away nominal Christianity, that casts away fascination, and also casts away wickedness. Lord, do a good work within our hearts so that we might pursue truly after You. Let us kill sin. Let us, let us stand ready to battle against sin, even the sins of fascination, even the sins of wickedness that prevail, so that we might live as living vessels of the Lord Jesus Christ until You return to usher us into glory. We pray these in Your Son's name. Amen.